Uh, I'm not in any way condoning graffiti, but on Catherine Street, just around the corner from Maudlam Road, there is this piece of um, artwork. I expect some of you will know where it is. You might walk past it every day, you may not have spotted it. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Who taught you to think? Why do you think like that? Why do you have that framework? Why do you process information in that way? What voices are you listening to? What is it about your childhood, your makeup? Your teaching? What cultures are you wanting to be accepted in? What things are you chasing? Why do you chase those things? Who taught you to think? Because, of course, the danger is ours is a city, ours is a world of achievement, a world of success and power and progress, of, of celebrity even, a world, a city of winning, of, of reaching the top, of making a mark, of climbing the ladder. That that is the air we breathe day by day, week by week. There's a pressure to make us think in a particular way. That is our framework very often. But unless we're discerning, unless we're self-critical and self-aware, then that is a very dangerous way to be thinking. When the world's mindset is our mindset, we're on shaky ground. So maybe it's for us as individuals, the goals, the dreams, the ideals, the plans that we have for our life are pretty similar to those who live next door to us. Maybe a slightly Christianized version, but pretty similar nonetheless. Maybe corporately for us as a church, the vision and hope and dreams that we might have for the future when we think about buildings or when we think about growth or those sorts of things. Very easily we can dig down and it can just really be a similar thing to perhaps an organization next door to us. It's a Christianized version, but really it's about achievement and success and power and influence, reputation, making our mark. How different actually are we? Who taught us to think? We need to take care because success in and of itself is not a bad thing at all, it's not wrong. Doing things well, growing people. Perhaps we should expect a level of growth as God's word goes out. We should expect it to work in people's lives and hearts. We should expect it to transform. Success is not wrong, but it can very easily come with strings attached. Listen to this very powerful, very honest, very truthful comment from Madonna. You'll see what happens when success is your driver. She says this. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me pushing me. 
Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I think it's a privilege to be able to see into her heart. But who taught her to think? So the plan for the next few weeks is going to be us really rethinking how we think, rethinking what matters to us. It's going to be a topical series for a change. It's called The Paradox of God's Kingdom. You probably saw that from the initial slide. It means we're going to be wrestling with ideas of discipleship, of what it means to be a mature Christian. And especially where Jesus says things and the world say things and they are in opposition to each other. Where the Christian life seems to clash with the rest of life. Where how he tells us to think and what the world says about thinking are at odds with each other. So you can grab a program afterwards. There's green ones at the back. Um, Just to give you some examples and give you a bit of colour. I know if you're like me, you will want sort of examples to fill it out. What on earth is he talking about? So... Why does the Bible say that it is only through death to self that we have life? Death to life seems like a paradox. It seems that doesn't work. Or why is true glory only found through suffering? Or why is freedom actually seen in slavery? Or strength in weakness? Or wisdom in in foolishness. These things, they feel wrong to us. They feel the wrong way round. They're topsy-turvy. Jesus says the way up is the way down. But our minds, our hearts, they, they pull against it. We don't like that. We don't want to have to suffer. We don't want to have to die to self. We, we don't want to admit weakness. We don't want to appear foolish. We don't want the way up to be the way down. And so we need to rethink how we think. And as a broad overview to kind of kick things off, as Alex did a fantastic job with the kids, we're going to be starting in a slightly obscure passage in the Old Testament. Um, 2 Kings 5. This man called Naaman. In one sense, he was not one of the good guys. He is not a hero. So have a look down with me, 5 verse 1, 2 Kings 5 verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. As Alex said, he was a bit of a big deal, an important man a commander of an army, an area that we would now call Syria, an enemy nation to Israel. More than a commander of soldiers, though, just flick on to verse 18, and you see he is powerful and esteemed. It describes the king leaning on his arms, so perhaps an equivalent of a prime minister. He's there to support the king. Someone with success, power, money, top of the tree, big player, But he has a problem. His problem is he's a dead man walking. And so 5 verse 1 finishes. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. What's the problem with him? He's a broken man. 
despite all his success, despite his achievements, despite his status, despite his power, despite having the ear of the king, Naaman's broken. Now, we don't exactly know what he has. The text describes it as leprosy, but that word in Hebrew describes a whole raft of different diseases. Uh, Psoriasis, rashes. You see later in verse 27, as Alex so nicely acted for us, his skin was white. White as snow. So actually, it's unlikely it's the leprosy we know today, Hansen's disease, where eventually you lose feeling, you lose limbs. We don't know what it was, really, but we do know he was in a bad way. He was so desperate, he was willing to listen to one of his little servant girls. He grasped at that final straw. Verse 2, now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman is successful, but he's not okay. He is broken. I take it he's a very graphic and vivid picture of someone like Madonna. Her her horrible fear of mediocrity, yet despite the success that she enjoys. And the many and the varied and the diverse people who climb expectantly to the top of the success tree. And they get there. And they say, is this it? This isn't what I was expecting. I'm still broken. Why hasn't this delivered? Or indeed, those who have success taken away from them. They get to the top and success is removed. Listen to former um, world number one women's tennis star, Chris Evert. She retires and she says this. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life has been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Do you see, if your identity is found in playing tennis one minute, but the next you're retired... Or playing violin on a Wednesday and you break your arm on a Thursday. Or your status at work one month and you're sacked the next. And suddenly you think, well, maybe life is about something else. Maybe the stuff that I was living for hasn't really given me life. Maybe my answer to the brokenness isn't actually the answer. If you are here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I wonder if I might ask you a question. The question I'd love to ask is this. What, if anything, do you think is wrong with the world? What is the reason for the brokenness in the world? And to follow that up with, what, if anything, is wrong with me, with you? The story of the Bible is that the world is broken at root, at foundation. It's not as it's meant to be. And in a sense, the story of Naaman is a clear and vivid picture of that brokenness. But not just the brokenness, 
the way that we can fix the brokenness too. But it's not fixed in the way that we might have expected. Not how we might think. So he was a broken man, but he can't fix himself. So what do we think the solution is to our brokenness? Well, Naaman, as Alex said, thinks it is about power and prestige and money and a technique. Naaman is a somebody. Naaman knows a somebody. Naaman knows that somebody's make things happen. He is going to make things happen. And so verse 4, he went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go. The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. He has his plan. He gets his letter of recommendation. He gets his bag of money. He is going to their king, and he will get it sorted. I get my people to talk to your people. Everyone's got a price. We'll be fine. But he doesn't understand the God of the Bible. The king seems to, verse 7, and as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? It seems Naaman and his king's mindset, framework for thinking, is one of a kind of man-centered religion. Do something good and your God or your gods will be happy with you and they will sort it out. They will give you what you want. God becomes a cosmic vending machine. We are in charge. We, We put something in and out come the goodies. But verse 7, the king of Israel says that's not how God works. He is not a vending machine. He is not forced reluctantly to, to react to the requests of his people. He is not dependent upon us in our asking him. He is in charge. A letter from his king and a bag of cash is not going to cure Naaman. Because God is God. That framework is very common today. What many people think about God, what they even think we're doing here at church on a Sunday morning, you you make God happy, you do enough, you give enough, you go to church, you keep your nose clean, you stay out of trouble, and life will be okay. Out of the vending machine comes the goodies. And yet before we point the finger too quickly out there somewhere, its shadows very easily cast across our hearts too. Why haven't I received what I want? Why did I have this lot in life? Why didn't I get the job? Why is my life just so hard and complicated and difficult? I know, I'll work harder. I'll be more diligent and resolute with New Year's resolutions. I'll be more disciplined with quiet times. I'll read my Bible more. I'll do more exercise like I said I would. If I don't succumb to that temptation, then out will come the goodies. God will give me what I want. And there's Naaman. Letter in one hand, bag of money in the other. And the king says, that is not how God works. I'm not sure his reaction is perfect in verse 7. 
As an example for the people of God, he seems to have lost his faith in God. Surely as the king, he should have cried out to God, sought him, petitioned him, fasted, prayed for this guy's healing. Instead, he just tears his robes, thinks he's trying to start a fight. You see, the solution to Naaman's problem, to, to our brokenness, isn't found in what we can do or how much we can pay, or the level of our success, or our, our track record, or, or the things that we hold up to God and say, look, look what you owe me. He's not a vending machine. He's in charge. He's in charge, and yet he works through people who, who trust him, who do as he says. And so Naaman, letter in one hand, bag of money in the other, has to be humbled. He has to see he is helpless. He, he has to change how he thinks. He needs to learn that the way down is the way up. He's a broken man who can't fix himself, but who can be fixed by God. I'm going to read 8 to 14 again. Follow it with me, if you can, in your Bibles. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. The way down is the way up. He needed humility, so instead of going to the king, he sees the prophet. Instead of seeing the prophet, he sees his servant. Instead of some incantation from Elisha as he calls on the name of the Lord, he's just got to go and wash in the River Jordan. He can't earn his healing. He can't pay for his healing. But rather, God works in simple ways, humbling him. God is utterly in charge. It's interesting, actually, if you look at the whole story of 2 Kings 5, you do see God is in charge every single step of the way. Even in verse 1, did you spot it back there? We thought about it briefly at first Tuesday a couple of weeks ago. God is in charge. Why has Naaman had military success? Because God has granted it to him. From international politics to individual circumstances. From the big picture to the minor details. We can trust that our God is in charge. It's encouraging to look ahead at 2014 and remember that. 
We think through buildings and people and who knows what is around the corner. Our God is in charge. He is powerful. And because he is powerful, we don't need to be powerful. We can be honest. It's striking, isn't it? In 2 Kings 5, who is the hero? At least in human terms, who's the hero? It's not the king. Probably the king ought to have been. It's not Naaman. It's not even really Elisha. He's got a fairly minor part to play. I think it's the little servant girl. She's at the very bottom of Syria's social structure. Her parents have probably been murdered. She really ought to have borne a grudge. And what was her name? Did you spot it? It's not even there. She's completely anonymous. But she's a model for us because she seems to forgive generously. She seems to point a broken man, an enemy even, to the place where he can find life. She is the hero. God is powerful, so we don't need to be powerful. We just need to be humble. We need to trust him with our brokenness. One writer said this, Wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy. What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Or maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea that putting your faith and trust in a man executed on a cross nearly 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness from sin, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. Now that beats all. Because you see, the pages in the Bible turn. And onto the pages of history walks a man who looks weak and powerless and not particularly special. A man even who comes and, and, and who touches lepers. But remember what the king said, verse 7, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? So who is this weak man who walks onto the pages of history doing the kind of stuff that God does? Bringing life. It's God himself. Taking on flesh. Jesus coming to earth, coming to free people from their brokenness, coming to cleanse them, coming to bring them life. And the way he does that ultimately, the cross. That looks pretty weak, doesn't it? But it's there that sin is dealt with. It's there that God's anger is poured out. It's there that enemies from far off are brought close. It's there that we see the way down is the way up. So look at Naaman as he enters the water, as he is humbled, as he washes in the Jordan. And don't just see a broken man with a horrible skin disease being made alive again. In very vivid terms, see people like me and people like you with sin being washed away. With brokenness being made whole again. With death being replaced with life. And did you see that God's grace is, is transformative too? Naaman is utterly changed, not just in terms of his skin being renewed, 
But he's changed on the inside too. He is not the same anymore. Everything is different now. God didn't just heal him of his leprosy. He, he healed his, his heart. So do you remember the complaining and the moaning in verse 11 to 12? Proud and arrogant name. And now listen to what happens in 15 to 19. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before them and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. He's utterly changed. He's changed in how he relates to God. He recognizes God is the God, the one true God. He recognizes that he must worship him. He even sees an advanced conflict in the workplace, verse 18, when he heads back to his king and has to enter the temple of Rimmon. He asks for forgiveness in advance, and Elisha seems to be happy with that. So he's changed in how he relates to God. But that encounter, that relationship, transforms in how he relates to others too. So five times in those verses, he says he is a servant. Verse 15, twice in 17, twice in 18. No longer is success what Naaman is about. Now he's a servant. He's changed how he thinks. So I wonder as we begin this new series, who taught you to think? Has what God has done for you affected your priorities, your mindset, your attitudes? Can you see something of yourself in Naaman? That the reality of your brokenness and your sin, despite perhaps your seeming success. You know what you're like behind closed doors. The reality of how you really are. Have you known the Lord's grace and kindness? And so like him, are you, are you one who worships the true God? Are you one who sees himself as a, a servant? It's a strong word, isn't it? That they're the characteristics that Naaman shows. They are the evidence that he seems to have grasped grace. God's kindness has changed him. Changed him from within, 